Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Gemma Blumen, Principal at Creandum. She joined Creandum in 2021 after having several senior operating roles at Uber and more recently at Elder, where she was a COO. Gemma is an extremely curious extrovert who enjoys working with entrepreneurs. She's also been an angel investor herself, having invested in over 10 startups. She has a particular soft spot for operationally complex B2C businesses, marketplaces, digital health, and sustainability. In this episode, we'll talk about Creandum and what Gemma looks for specifically when she's looking at investments. I'm delighted to have Gemma on my show today. Welcome. Thank you so much, Anita. It's really great to, to be here and to do this show today. Excellent. So I wanted to start off by asking you why you decided to leave an operational role to join a VC firm and what advice you would give to others who might be considering the same move? Yeah, great question. Um, it's definitely not something that I saw coming. I started my career in consulting and quite quickly decided that in and out of going into companies, writing PowerPoint slides was not what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be more involved in, in the actual journey of companies. And yeah, after an MBA, I ended up pivoting into operations a little over eight years ago. And it's a career that I really enjoyed. And I, I love being an operator. Towards the end of my time at, at Elder, there was a few things that I guess helped me move into this direction. First of all, I guess my job was changing. I was moving into a more clinical compliance direction, something that I wasn't very passionate about and also probably ultimately not the right person and during COVID specifically like managing all the clinical pieces and such was also not the most energizing so I was already thinking like how should my role change like I was talking to my boss okay maybe should I take a different role in the organization that suits me better that I would enjoy more and then there was also the fact that being away from my team during COVID actually helped me reflect a lot on, on what I was enjoying and what I was not enjoying because I'm a really big extrovert. I think you mentioned it. I, I got so much energy from being around people and being home alone with my husband and, and my dog. So I, I wouldn't like pity myself, but not being with my team helped me, I guess, understand better what were the things that I was enjoying in my day-to-day -day job and, and what were the things that maybe I wasn't enjoying as much anymore. And Turns out that people was the big thing of what I was enjoying with what I was doing, maybe not so much. But what I was actually really enjoying and what was giving me a lot of energy was my side hustle in the evenings and weekends, working with early, very early stage founders that I'd invested in as an angel. And, and during COVID, that was like my lifeline of what was giving me energy and like new social contacts and something for me to wrap my, my head around and, and think about and 
one thing that I came to realize was like being an investor, being an early stage investor is a perfect combination of being an operator, but also in some ways like getting the diversity that you get in consulting where you work with yeah. many different companies on many different problems, but you do actually get to be part of, of their journey for the long run and, and the type of issues they work on and the type of like companies they're building are so inspiring. So that was my aha moment into, okay, maybe I do want to be an investor, but maybe I want to be an early stage investor. And, and I had like very open conversations with my boss about that ultimately and, and decided openly to go into VC, but we agreed on a very long handover. We could recruit somebody to replace me and I could train them up. And, and meanwhile, I could explore what the best place for me and venture would be and, and what the best fund would be. And that's very much turned out to be Creandum. I feel like at Creandum, you're working with people, but it's not like you have a team reporting to you. Has that been a change? It's a great question. And it's actually something that I normally bring up when I talk about the differences between being a, an investor and being an entrepreneur or, or or senior executive. And I think it's been a big difference. There's things I really miss about having a team. Like I, I love building a team. I love developing a team. I get a lot of satisfaction and happiness from seeing people grow and from seeing them achieve things that they never used to achieve from seeing them go to different places and take new roles. But it also comes with some limitations around flexibility and autonomy. And as a senior operator, you are very beholden to, to your team in terms of what you do and output, and also in terms of how you spend your time and when they need you. Whereas as an investor, I feel that, you know, yes, it's all, it's on my shoulder. There's people to support me and we do have like yeah. more junior team members and they're phenomenal. I couldn't do my job without them. But it's very autonomous and you structure your days and you structure your time and you decide when to lean in, when not to lean in, what is interesting, what's not. And I found that flexibility really helpful, especially in mm. this stage of my life, managing work-life balance. And it's something that, that I really value. But we're building a team as well. And yes, people might not directly report into each other and then to me, but it definitely feels like I'm part of a wider team. And that's a great feeling too. What advice would you give to other people that are in an operating role and maybe looking at making a move to the VC world, what is it that yeah. they should be aware of before doing that? Yeah, great question. First of all, let me answer what you could do to help you figure out if this is something that might be the right path for you. And then secondly, I can answer what could actually help you get that job, right? Because okay. I think they are a little bit different, yeah. but some, some of the elements there are related. Lots of differences between being an operator and being a VC, but like some of the key differences are being in a, a VC is much more externally focused than being an operator. So it's a very social job. You end up meeting a lot of different people every day, working with both different people from your portfolio, but also from like new founders that you meet on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as people from the VC ecosystem that you need to work, like develop relationships with, et cetera. That suits certain personalities and it doesn't suit others. It's definitely one of, one of my surprises was how sociable this job is. And it's, it suits me really well, but not everyone enjoys that element of it. Second of all, the feedback loops are very different. So as an operator, quite clear, your team does X. And if you hit certain metrics, that's what good looks like. Whereas in investing, you make maybe around two investments a year per senior person. Wow. It might take 10 years to know like how many of those are actually good. So you have to be very self-driven and very much self-motivated, trust your instincts. 
but you don't get validation in terms of whether you're actually a good investor for quite a while. And then there's the diversity of, of topic, right? As an investor, you work on a lot of different things and you work with a lot of different companies, but you don't get really stuck into anything. And that's something that suits me at the moment. But a lot of operators love getting really stuck into the problems and working on them and building themselves. And there's elements of that that I well, I'm fortunate to be able to do in my role at Crandon now because we're building out a London office and that, that's been really great. But I, I think most investor roles have that much less. So some stuff to consider. There's definitely a lot more diversity and you get a lot of intellectual challenge and new topics all the time. So I think that's fantastic about it. So yeah, I would just say some things to consider there. And then for me, what really helped to figure out if this was something that I enjoyed in retrospect, because that wasn't my original purpose was angel investing. So yeah. investing and, 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 and I think there, what's key to remember is you don't have to be very rich to angel invest. As an operator, you can invest very small tickets and be a value add on the cap table for entrepreneurs with even a few thousand pounds because they're not like looking to partner with you for your money. They're looking to partner with you for your time and expertise. And that for me was like a great way to work with different types of companies in different sectors and different founders and, and also to become a little bit more part of the investor ecosystem and, and get a, a little bit of a taste for what it would be like to be an investor. And there are some ways that you can more easily get into angel investing. I kind of randomly got into it, but there's a number of syndicates that exist, especially for operators. I was also part of a syndicate that, or not a syndicate, but a group that invests primarily in female founders. And there's a few other ways that you can mm. get into this without, you know, having to necessarily have the deal flow yourself yeah. or writing very large tickets. But for me, that was really helpful to kind of help me explore. And then just talking to a lot of people in the wider ecosystem around what type of roles are there in investing what type of firm would suit me? What type of role within those funds would suit me? So I did a lot of exploration around that. And then in terms of getting the job, again, angel investing there helps because it shows that you have a mentality of A, you can find deals and B, you can evaluate them and then you can talk to them and why you think they're good. And that shows a little bit the, the investor mindset. And ultimately when... When funds look to hire a senior investor, they're looking for a few different things, right? And this is especially at senior levels. Uh, so not necessarily at junior, but at senior levels, we're looking for A, somebody who can uh, source deals. So has either an existing network or can quite quickly build an existing network um, of other founders, VCs, angels that can give deal flow. So having a, a strong network that you can build on is, is important. But then also we're looking for the type of person who can evaluate that deal flow in the right way and build relationships and report with entrepreneurs to then actually be allowed to invest and to win the deal. And then to work with those companies and make them successful. So it's, it's, a, it's a number of different skill sets. And some of those you can actually showcase very well with existing angel relationships. Now, you don't have to have been an angel and you can show these qualities maybe in different ways in interviews. But I think having done some sort of investing or having been involved in investment decisions is very helpful from that perspective. Also having worked on a fundraise from your own company, like I was very involved in our series B fundraise. That was incredibly helpful for me to understand like you know, the dynamics from the other side. 
often trying to get involved in your own company's fundraise, very helpful, or helping friends with their fundraise or other companies. And anything that can get you that insider knowledge, I think is really helpful. And then we we look for people that can connect to founders and really build that personal brand. It's different on the junior level. So at junior levels, we're more looking for people that are analytical and have social skills, but you don't have to have the network or have any investing experience. It's really just having the ability to be like highly analytical combined with high EQ. So we can put you in touch and with founders. That was really helpful. Not only to how to evaluate whether you're right to go into the investing route, but also some really solid advice on how to get there. Thank you very much for that. I want to move on to Cuyando. They are the VC company in Europe that have made a name for themselves and have done it repeatedly with so many successful unicorns and exits to their name. And having just joined them a year ago, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what do you attribute Creandum's incredible success in picking so many winners year after year? What do you think makes Creandum a special VC firm for you? So maybe the second question is a little bit easier to answer in terms of what makes Creandum a very special VC fund to me. And I think it is related to, to also why the fund has been so incredibly successful. So first of all, I think it has amazing people incredibly humble and nice and kind and smart and just fantastic people to work with. And that's, that has trickle down effects in many different ways. First of all, they hire great people that want to work with them that, and they create a culture that is great to work in, but also they work very effectively and successfully with founders and win deals and thus get to be that partner for the long run for those great companies. And they stay. So our senior team is actually very stable. People have been with the fund for a long time, which means that they can build track record within the fund. They can help build that success. Whereas other funds, oftentimes people might start off, do well, and then go somewhere else. Um, We have have done, and I say we, but obviously I wasn't part of that during most of the past 20 years, a great job at retaining top talent and building them up within the fund and, and making them successful. And so I think ultimately, and, and one of the key reasons I joined was because of the team and, and the quality of the people there. I think some other things that set us apart from other early stage funds in Europe is we, we do only seed and A, and I think that's been a really good focus for us over the years and, and, and will continue to be. It's a very high conviction, low frequency. And I alluded to this earlier where I said most of us on average do two deals a year. And, and that means A, you have to be really picky. So you really pick only the best. And sometimes that means you miss certain great companies, but also miss, means you miss certain not so great companies, which ultimately from a returns perspective, has been really successful for Karanda. But it also means you have time and capacity to work with those companies. And we put as much time and effort in a pre-seed and seed deal as in a like a large series A, we will join the board. We will do regular catch-ups with you. We have a portfolio team that leans in. And uh, yeah, the, the person from our senior team who will be your deal lead will be very involved. And I think that has also helped us both, again, from building the companies, but most of that is due to the founders, but also from actually finding and, and partnering with great founders, because that's the reputation that we have in the market. And it's one of the key reasons why I chose Grand. And when I was doing referencing amongst several funds that I was choosing from, just the reputation amongst founders is really strong. And, and then I think there are just some things we focus on the very early stage 
we have a very strong product focus, a very strong team focus. And I do believe that ultimately that is what makes a company successful. Most of the unicorns that we've invested in, we invested pre-revenue. So it's not like you can go necessarily by the numbers. And yeah, one in seven companies that Cranham has invested in is now a unicorn yeah. and, and more are on track to become that. And that is phenomenal. I mean, just the consistency by which they've kept their standards really high and partner only with exceptional teams and, and products. One in seven is a unicorn. That is quite a statistic. The fact that you only do two a year is, is really astonishing. Could be more, but this is the average over time. Talk me through the creandum way of finding and evaluating uh, a decision to invest in a company. So in terms of finding, we find founders in so many different ways. Some email us, call us, message us. Some are introduced to us by other founders, either in our portfolio or angel investors that we know. Some we reach out to because they've been on our radar and they, they seem interesting to us. Some we've spoken to in the past and decided to build relationships with over time. So we find them in many different ways. But then once we find them, our process is relatively consistent. We have a few conversations where we go into depth about what they're building, what they've done so far, who they are as people, all the typical things go to the deck. We follow up with a list of questions normally that we go through, sometimes asynchronously and, and sometimes in a meeting. We, we try at some point to meet in person. It's not a requirement, but I think it's helpful also for, for the founder side to, to be able to evaluate and do the diligence on the investor and the person who might join your board for 10 years. And, and then we, if relevant and if possible, we try to do reference customer calls. And so we talk to either current customers or prospective customers of the product just to understand how it would fit into the market, how it compares to others. And we try to do all of this in a reasonably quick way. We can do it in a few days. We've done it in 24 hours or 48 hours. And I mean, it already takes one to two weeks, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then the final stage, people who've been working on the deal are convinced and are excited and want to partner with, with this founder. We tend to bring the founders in to meet our entire team because again we operate as a team and you will get the entire team behind you and you will be able to you know call on all of them when you want introductions or help so we want you to meet the entire team and think it's good for the entire team to meet you after we we do that meeting which is now almost always virtually we have a vote and then the deal team gets to decide whether they want to do the deal or not what happens if the partners don't agree to something you believe strongly in it's a great question. Luckily, it has never happened. I think that's something that we would figure out earlier in the process. So I found that Corandum is a culture where people are helping me become my best possible investor, not, you know, number five typical Corandum investor, but really how can Gemma become her best possible self and do the type of deals that is also her type of deals. And that means for me, like when I'm working on a deal, it might be a deal that no one else would do, but I build conviction and I answer the questions that I also discuss with other partners throughout the way and get their input and what they're concerned about. And then I need to find conviction and, and reassurance to those questions. What's, what's important for any of us that leads deals is throughout the process to make sure that you check in with others to get their input and then to make sure that you have conviction over 
the concerns that they raise and the questions that they pose. I also promised you, you an example. So for example, I, I recently led a deal in, in a seed company called Packfleet, which is a next generation logistics platform out of London. The team is phenomenal. Ex senior team from, from Monzo, the ex uh, head of marketing who skilled the company for five years, um, head of design and one of the strongest engineering managers. And a logistics product, which is very different than what they were doing before. Yeah. Uh, so it definitely wasn't like a shoe in for us, but I met them through somebody I knew who invested in the pre-seed, was very impressed by what they were doing. I met them before they started raising, went to their warehouse, got to know them a little bit. And then when they started raising process-wise, I involved two other people from my team. So one of the GPs and one of the associates and we build conviction around first of all like the team and the product that they had built and how they were wanted to approach this but then also we spoke to a number of e-commerce companies to get their take on hey are you happy with your current delivery options in london and the answer was no and they wanted more customer mm. uh, friendly solutions they wanted more green solutions they wanted a better merchant product and then we spoke to a number of packfleet's current customers and they were all raving about them. And they were like, this is the best thing ever. And it's so much better than all the legacy providers. And, and those conversations really helped build conviction for us. And, and equally, throughout that process, a number of our partners asked questions like, hey, we know this company. How is it comparable to that? Is the market situation here? And we made sure that as a deal team, we answered those mm. questions. So then by the time we were convinced... We also had gone through all the questions that the partners had and provided reassurance. And then when the, then the team presented, everyone was very inspired and, and excited. Then, of course, we had to win the deal because it was a competitive process. And the relationship that we built with them really helped. But what also helped is that we really, our entire team leaned in. It was really a team effort. And it showed, I think, the random spirit of we all win and lose together. And, and once... We decide we want to partner with the company. We're all in um, and all of us are in for the long run. I love that example. How is the team structure? Do you have an area that you focus on specifically? Yeah, this is an evolving process for us. As we recently um, opened our, our London office, which is now an equal size office to our Berlin and, and Stockholm offices. And then we also have our, our San Francisco satellite office still. And we have ever more people. So we now have eight of us who lead deals. The way it works right now is first of all, we have like a matrix between geography coverage and, and vertical coverage, which means like each of us is affiliated to one of the offices. And, and that tends to be our primary market of where we source and where we get deals and where we try to make sure we see everything. Some of us have a secondary market as well. So for instance, because I'm Dutch, the Benelux is my, is my secondary market. And please do send me any interesting needs in that ecosystem. But I won't spend too much time actively reaching out. So like the whole DAC region, the Nordics and, and the UK, we try to see everything, but we don't as a local team necessarily try to lead everything. So we will evaluate her deal, who is best placed in our team overall. So not just locally to work on this deal and to lead this deal. And again, this is like, we win and lose as a team. So if it's a fintech deal in London, that's not my expertise or any of the other four investors there. So we will pull in, for example, Johan, who is on the board of Trade Republic and Clio, like two of the most successful, both B2C and B2B 
uh, fintech unicorns in Europe. And he will work with us on that deal and potentially lead it because he's much better placed to do that. And equally, like if it is, for example, a marketplace deal or a digital health deal, I might get pulled into it to evaluate and lead because hmm. I'm better placed. That's how we operate. And each of us have a number of areas that we are focusing on, which is a combination of things that we have expertise in, either because, you know, operating experience in those areas or because we've been in those areas and have built that expertise over time. And sometimes it's because we're very interested in those areas and we are still learning and, and, and meeting companies like Climate Tech, for example, is an area that myself, our partner Sabina and our general partner Stefan are very passionate about. And, and I wouldn't say either, either of us are experts in it, but we're all trying to learn and mm-hmm. become better and, and, and become as knowledgeable investors as possible so that we can make investments in this space because we think it is, A, incredibly important from an impact perspective, but also has huge potential to create uh, yeah, category-defining multi-billion dollar businesses. I've been interviewing a lot of entrepreneurs in that space, and it is huge. There's so many different ways in which you can classify yourself as climate tech. I can imagine that there's a lot of work in trying to lay out the landscape of the space and figure out where Creandum needs to focus on. One other question I had from the entrepreneur side is you talked about how they can approach you, whether it's cold email or through an investor, et cetera, through an introduction. Talk to me a little bit about when they should approach you for money, for seed or for series A. Yeah, great question. So a few different thoughts on that. If you're looking to build a relationship, which I think is helpful and important, and if you are a strong company, and especially if you come recommended by someone, we will actually be looking to build a relationship with you rather than evaluate you for investment immediately when we meet you. Then any time is good, right? So it could be when you're just starting to think about your business and you've left some other well-performing company, or it could be after you've just raised from someone else and you want to develop some relationships towards the next round and we can just grab coffee and and we can get to know a little bit about what you're building, who you are, but we won't go deep into the data or anything like that. And I think those relationships are important and we can develop them with everyone, but with select people, these are often types the type of companies that, that we end up investing in. And, and also equally, we end up investing in a lot of seed and A deals that we met the round before. But at that point, there might have been like certain open questions or certain elements of timing where we felt that this was not the right time for us to invest, but we stayed in touch for the next round. In our last fund, we did about 60% at seed, 10% at pre-seed, and 30% at A. So those roughly are the areas where we are best position to to play and any kind of seed or a deals within our remit we do tickets between one and 20 million so timing wise then if you're if you're actively looking maybe a few weeks before you go to market or when you just go to market is the perfect time and and then there is different ways to approach us the best way is to get an introduction from an existing investor or angel or somebody who knows us just because we get a lot of of the deals on our plate and if somebody that we value highly recommends you it, it means something but it's by no means the only way i read every email that i get so if you send it to me i will read it i definitely i'm not able to meet with every founder that emails me but if they're if you're sending me an interesting deck like i've met with a lot of founders who i didn't get introduced to but who just called approach me 
for me personally, LinkedIn is not the best way to reach me just because I get so many requests that I don't have time to go through them. So most likely won't even see your message Mm. or your request. Then events are also a good way to meet investors, conferences, local networking events, just meeting people in person, and then you can follow up afterwards. I think that's something that's obviously COVID stopped for a while, but it's back now, which is really great to see. Great. And if you think about seed and A, what are some of the metrics you look at for investment? I don't think we have any, right? We don't definitely don't have any thresholds as in theories A need to be at X, a seed needs to be at Y. I mentioned earlier that most of the companies we've invested in that are now unicorns, we invested pre-revenue. So there definitely isn't a requirement to, to be at a certain stage. The stage you add might determine what we think the appropriate investment and valuation is but not whether we'd want to partner with you. Now, in, and then, of course, we do look at the metrics and it depends very much on the type of company you are and the stage you're at, what metrics we look at. At seed and early stage, we would look very much for evidence of product market fit in the sense that we would like to see that customers or users love you. And that could be because you've done a trial with a hundred of them and they're all engaged and they're using you many times and they are writing testimonials. Or it could be because you went viral and you got tens of thousands of signups organically, or because you've partnered with three trial B2B customers and they're very excited about you and now looking to actually get a contract with you. So it could could look in in like very many different things. It's just that we would like to see, this is why we invest more at seed than at pre-seed, because most of the time we would like to see some evidence of some people, whether it's businesses or, or consumers, love your product ideally of course then the later like the more mature you are the more we will look at things like growth how quickly are you growing Mm. momentum is more important than the the actual number you're at so if you are Mm. growing five acts a year but and but you're you know only at five hundred thousand revenue per year that is more impressive to us than if you grew two and a half acts but you're 800,000. So it's that growth curve that we that we look for. And then we do look at your revenue and we look at retention as well. So your revenue retention and, and your customer retention and if customers stay with you. And then again, depending on the type of business, we'll look at a whole range of different things like CAG and LTV to CAG and whatnot. But there's no hard requirements in terms of what we need to see to invest. At later stages, roughly, we like to see more than 3x growth year on year. Mm. But in early stages, so when you're starting from a zero base, that's, that's not really a relevant uh, Okay. Okay, great. And just to clear, you're only focusing on Europe, right? In Korean? Yeah, we do Europe. We do invest also in European founders that build abroad. So some okay. examples there actually okay. of some quite successful unicorn companies that we've backed are Corner Shop that was acquired by Uber for a billion, uh, Neo4j, Verta Health. But all of these are... European founders that we knew from Europe that are building in yeah other continents. Okay, great. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit and talk about Europe as a whole. And what are you excited about? What are you seeing in Europe that you're really excited about? Yeah, I think some trends that I'm personally really excited about is first of all, great companies come from anywhere. And this is very much accelerated by COVID. 
but already a trend that started before that. Like Europe has a lot of great universities, a lot of distributed talent, partly because of the distributed nature of its countries. But we, for example, partnered with three companies coming out of Budapest, mm. one of which is Sion, which recently raised a round of more than half a billion dollars. Phenomenal company, as are the other two that we that we partnered with there, Shaper 3D and Craft. Um, and, and we didn't have any like focus on Budapest. We just found three great companies. And similarly, we've partnered with companies from Spain to Czech Republic to Poland. And I think that's what makes Europe really special. And also from a team building perspective, that means you can have founder in London and that has a team potentially of people that are sitting across all of Europe. And yeah. you have great engineers in, in many different places. And I think that can be really beneficial when you're building a team. I think another thing that makes a lot of European countries really great talent hubs is that the countries are small and, and not many people speak the, the local language, which means founders need to build for for internationalization from day one. Right. For example, companies like Spotify and such you can't just build for Sweden. You have to build for the global market. And and I think that's the Dutch ecosystem is like that as well, because the local system is just yeah, not small, not big enough to sustain a big business. If you look at American companies, for example, they almost always start just building for the US, and oftentimes they just stay there because it's a big market. And why would you think about internationalization? Whereas in Europe, I think for most founders, that is in their DNA, and it's something that they're thinking about from yeah. day one, which is really special. Yeah. What about trends? Yeah, so I think one of them is climate tech. We've spoken about that before, but I think there's huge appetite here, partly from founders, partly from customers, but also actually from more existing industries to change and to to really build yeah, industries and, and structures and companies in a better way. And that gives huge opportunity for founders to innovate in this space and to grow. There's a lot of climate tech funds now as well. A lot of great talent going into that space. I think we're ahead of the US from this yeah. perspective. And I think it's great that Europe is this far. Obviously, we'd love the US to be further uh, ahead as well. But I think that's a, that's a clear trend that we're seeing. Other trends, we are, of course, seeing also the Web3 trend and, and more European founders and talent going into that space from a number of different verticals and then maybe less positive trends that we're seeing are around talent shortage and in most ecosystems in europe more and more we are seeing scarcity of, of senior talent mm. because there's so many great companies that have been built in the past few years and that many operators who have experience mm. working in those but also um, scarcity of talent in every different layer as the market becomes more competitive and the big tech companies are building out strong teams on this side of of the ocean. And, and that is something that a lot of our companies are definitely dealing with. I think there is talent, but it's going to require companies to think differently about the organizational design to solve that challenge. Well, this brings us to the end of the formal part of the podcast, but I have some questions still for you, Gemma, on a few other areas, not so much related to Creandum. If you could start a movement to change something or further a cause that you believe in, what would it be? Tricky question, because I think I feel very strongly about two, two specific subjects. And one of them is climate change and that there is a, that all of us have a strong responsibility to contribute in this in different ways. And yeah. so I personally 
I've invested in a lot of climate tech businesses, climate tech funds. I try to live my life in, in, in more sustainable ways. And I think this is something that all of us should be concerned about. The other thing that I'm very passionate about is female diversity and, and advocating for female leadership and equality around both place in the workforce as well as worlds at home and trying to further a world where women and men have, have equal opportunities and, and expectations um, and ability to live their lives in a way that they want to live their lives and be seen and, and rewarded for the potential and the strengths that they have and bring with them. So that's, those are probably the two areas where I am fighting and, and I would like to fight even more. And make an impact. Lovely. What about a favorite book that made an impact on you in some way? It could be fiction, nonfiction that you would recommend Oh, I wish I thought about this before because I'm a huge reader. So I read a lot of books and I have throughout my life. So there's a lot of books that have made a really big impact on me personally. When I was a child, one of my favorite books was Davida's Harp by Chaim Potok. It's probably not one that many people have come across, but I think he's one of the best authors, incredible writer. I love The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. My dog is called Gimli and after the dwarf. <laughs> that was like epic saga for me when I was a child. I guess as an adult, some of the books that I've enjoyed, I've, I've read loads of fiction books, but also some of the biographies of Michelle Obama have been inspirational to me. You live in the UK, but you've traveled a lot. What would you say is your favorite European city? So I think my favorite European city to visit is Barcelona. I love the food there. I love the beach. I love it. People are great. There's so much culture. It's a beautiful city. I, yeah, I've been there several times and I'm always very happy to be back. I definitely wouldn't want to live anywhere else. As you said, yeah. I've lived in many different places and I lived on four different continents and even more cities. And London is definitely the place. You and I have that in common. I've also lived in like, several different continents and several different countries, but I like London. I've, I've now lived here for eight years. So I've started to feel like London is my home. Same. What about a productivity tip? Some of the things that I do is I use my inbox rigorously in terms of starring, in terms of making sure that I'm on top of every email I send. I send myself emails about what to do and manage my time there. I use my calendar very actively as well. I plan blocks for myself to review things, do things. I manage my calendar myself. I haven't been able to to really manage relying on an assistant for that. I just have found that ultimately allows me to optimize how I spend my time as much as possible. There's other things around productivity about work, but it's also work life. So I exercise in the mornings. I've learned that's something that if I do that early in the morning, then it will happen. And if I don't, then it won't. I am quite strict about which days I care for the dog and I, I take the dog out for a walk and and I go home and stop working and, and continue again in the morning. So really being disciplined Probably about your time. Exactly. And yeah. there's probably other, I could be more productive, I think, if I prioritize even better. And that's something that I'm working on. Yeah. And my last question is like a favorite quote that you have. One quote that has been meaningful to me for a long time from when I was a teenager. And I had this wild idea of going to study in the US. From my upbringing, it was really not a standard path. There, there's this quote, it's from the musical Wicked. And it's one of the songs and it's, it says some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. And that's how I've lived my life. And it applies to many different things. It applies to how I have tried to take risks yeah. in my life and guys try to go for goals or change things or make career moves that might have seemed 
risky and not like certain. It pushes me to realize that it's not always about succeeding. It's also about trying and, and that's ultimately where you come the furthest. It also applies to things like the efforts you make around diversity and, and climate change and causes you believe in and advocating for what you think is right rather than necessarily the easy path and doing that regardless of whether you have a high chance of succeeding. And I think one of the things that I found throughout my life is that you can actually accomplish a lot more than you think and you can make a lot more difference than you think if you just try and put yourself yeah. forward. So it's a really important value for me to speak my truth and live live my life authentically, but also to speak up when I see injustice and try to make a difference in whatever way. Yeah, yeah I like that. Have. Yeah, no, love it. Okay, thank you so much, Gemma, for great conversation and good luck. I understand you have a new member of your family on your way and we'll be looking to see how that all rolls out. And maybe we'll have another conversation uh, a few months after you join back to see how the work-life balance is working out for you in the new phase that you're going into. So thank you. Yeah, sounds perfect. We'd love that. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and the ratings and review of the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.